This is Who Cares, and I am your host, Melinda. So today, I want to talk about authorship, not just like who writes what, but how the legacy of who an author is can sometimes um, become larger than or become attributed to their body of work. So uh, in the event that like it's not just about what they wrote, but it's about what this author wrote, right? And as I've probably said a million times by the time this episode goes up, my background, uh, my academic background, and a lot of my research and interests are based in early modern history and particularly early modern performance. And so, of course, uh, what better author with a capital A to talk about who has sort of flooded the market in terms of like attributed authorship and like the the name uh, of the game in terms of like early modern stuff, but our boy William Shakespeare. What is my opinion on Shakespeare, you may ask, if you have not heard me say it a million times. I am what you might call a Shakespeare pragmatist. I don't know. I think that Shakespeare is important um, in terms of understanding the history and the legacy of performance. But I also think that, you know, because Shakespeare is now this really important capital A author, that a lot of what else is out there and extant from the time when those plays were being written is kind of overshadowed. And I think that's really a bummer um, because I think that a lot of what a lot of people did back then, just like we have a diverse array of plays now, and we're always seeking out more diversity in playwriting and in representation, as we should, um, I think that a lot of the legacy of you know more diverse topics or more diverse performance styles or more diverse playwrights from that time are sort of overshadowed by just the the name uh, of Shakespeare and the sort of topicality and the flexibility that we attribute to those plays. Um, I just think there's more out there. So I'm going to talk about Shakespeare and I'm going to talk today specifically about how Shakespeare stopped sort of being a playwright who wrote plays and started being like the playwright who wrote the plays that we all know um, in the 18th century. So I'm essentially blaming the 1700s for turning Shakespeare into like a name rather than the writer of these plays. Um, and I'm going to do that by examining, of course, because you want to keep your scope small, I'm going to do that by examining five different complete works um, that were published during the, the 18th century by a bunch of different editors. Um, and I'm going to be comparing that to the original complete works that was published shortly after Shakespeare's death. So why the 1700s? Well, the 1700s were really remarkable in the fact that the ways that editors and critics of Shakespeare right now, at least 100 years after his death, sought to present his body of work to readers. And at the time, you know, plays were as read as they were viewed. So a lot of these changes in like the the ways that Shakespeare was presented can be observed through like the way that they were edited or in like observing certain patterns of like how the different plays were like ordered or cut or restored. But what I'm going to focus on today is how like prefatory and editorial material, the shit at the beginning of a book of plays or the beginning of a uh, complete works did that as well. So I'm going to look at Rose complete works, Pope's complete works, Tybalt's complete works, Johnson's complete works and Malone's complete works. So 
you know, it's going to be a grand old time. Who cares? I don't know. We'll see. So let's talk about the original Complete Works. This original Complete Works um, that was published in 1623 was published by two actors and businessmen named Hemming and Condal. So they published a folio of Shakespeare's work. They had known Shakespeare personally. They knew a lot of his associates. They had been a part of his companies. And so they were able to sort of cobble together as complete a version of his works as possible from his friends and his records. And they listed the contents of that original um, edition as, quote, Mr. William Shakespeare's comedies, histories, and tragedies published according to the true original copies. And then they had a portrait of Shakespeare. They had a dedication in the book. I'm talking about all the stuff before the plays, right? They had a dedication addressed to Philip and William Herbert, the Earls of Pembroke, and Montgomery. So patrons, right? So they had like a title, a picture of Shakespeare. They acknowledged the patrons of this book. And then they had a little, in their dedication, they wrote, um, so much were your likings of the several parts of Shakespeare when they were acted as before they were published, that the volume asked to be yours. So it's worth noting that this is an instance in which a reference to the author and his plays is not anecdotal. It's not like a version of the story told after the fact, but it's a reference to a direct interaction with Shakespeare's present body of work in relation to its complete publication. So it's not saying like, oh, when Shakespeare was alive, or like, oh, you know, who, it's not asking any questions. It's just directly addressing Shakespeare's present. So after that comes a note to the reader, and the reader meaning, quote, from the most able, meaning the most educated, to him that can but spell. So it sort of acts as like a justifier, like why do we need to publish this folio? Like why do we need all the complete works in one place? It sort of acts as a justification by explaining that like this the success of the plays themselves should justify that they exist as a complete version rather than just as so many other early modern plays are that weren't put in a collection that just kind of are found um, and picked apart. After that in the prefatory materials are some poems by Ben Johnson, a guy named Diggs, and one uncredited writer. And all three of these are about Shakespeare's death. They liken the circumstance of Shakespeare's death to the opportunity for a new awakening for him in the form of his unspoiled body of work. So this might warrant a little bit of explanation. Again, publishing your full body of work or the idea of like copywriting or ownership of material wasn't a thing during the 1600s like it is today. So a lot of plays, even if they were popular, were sort of published at the height of their popularity, if they were published at all, they were performed routinely and regularly and they were altered as necessary based on circumstances of the time during performance. So it was very difficult to get whole complete quote-unquote original copies of play texts back then. You kind of had to hunt around and pick apart with the companies or the people who had played the parts in order to get like a, a full version um, if it wasn't already published. So after this, right, after these poems, comes a list of 26 principal actors in all the featured plays, including Shakespeare himself and William Condell, one of the uh, publishers of this book, among them. So 
this is unique because it evokes a direct link to the author and his work as contemporary fixtures in the English consciousness. So Shakespeare and his plays essentially need not be re resurrected or, or recontextualized for their audience, only remembered as like the finest version of themselves. Um, the page before the table of contents of the plays contains a poem by Hugh Holland, and it again likens the legacy of the man to the work and continues the theme of comparing plays as like the undying body into which like Shakespeare's soul might live indefinitely. So there's this focus not on the man himself. The man himself is dead. Shakespeare's dead. It's his plays that live on, right? So then there's a table of contents. It lists the comedies first, 14, the history second, 10, and the tragedies third, 11. So the tone of the original folio sets a precedent for the work, right? The plays as the lifeblood of Shakespeare by those who knew him and arguably like sanctions and okays the continuation of the practice. And the preliminary materials are just a modest 15 pages, and they focus either on the fact that they're honoring Shakespeare or they focus decidedly on like the plays themselves. So now we're jumping ahead, jumping and skipping with glee, I hope, all the way to the year 1709 to Nicholas Rowe. Nicholas Rowe was an editor who compiled a version of the complete works of Shakespeare. So this version begins with the title, the number of the volume, and the list of the seven plays contained within the same order as they appear in the folio. So the order is the same. Now, why does it have the number of the volume? Because this was published in several volumes in a smaller collection, but it only contained prefatory materials in the first volume. So like Hemming and Condell, like the original folio, Rowe follows with a dedication to the Duke of Somerset, and here's our first difference. Where the folio's dedication served as a reminder of Shakespeare's worthiness and a commendation to the subjects of the dedication, Rose is much longer and focused basically on himself, like on the favor that he's doing to Somerset by like re-editing this version. So the work is framed in relation to the two of them, not to the work itself. So this is what Rose says in the dedication. I have sometimes had the honor to hear your grace express the particular pleasure you have taken in that beautiful expression which is everywhere to be met with in Shakespeare, and that he may still have the honor to entertain your grace, I have taken some care to redeem him from the injuries of former impressions. That's interesting, right? Because in the folio, right, in the past hundred years, we haven't heard what former impressions those might be. So following the dedication is one of the most lasting pieces of Nicholas Rowe's legacy as an editor. He provides, he wrote himself, he originated an anecdotal account of the life of Shakespeare. So here we're deviating away from just the plays and we're beginning to talk about the man, which sets an interesting precedent for the habit of some scholars and editors of Shakespeare up until today to combine elements from his texts with elements of his personal life to speculate about the ways in which he was like inspired, right? Among other things, this personal anecdotal account discusses Shakespeare's education, his family life, uh, how he became an actor and involved in the playhouses, what it was like to be writing, and basically uh, the introduction of like notable characters in his plays. So what's special about this piece, this anecdote, 
are like Rowe's attempts to use the author's circumstances as like a justification for the structure of his written, written work. Like, oh, what was he doing? What was he thinking? And how did that affect his work? Um, at the same time as it basically offers like guesses and suppositions about how his work may have informed upon his personality. So it's surprisingly psychological, right, for 1709. And it kind of fortifies the mystique between like Shakespeare as author and like author as work, right? Like is Shakespeare his work? Is the work because of his personal life or is it just a guy who wrote stuff? Like it raises questions about that. Then there's an illustration of a boat in a storm. And that's a title page for The Tempest, which is listed as a comedy along with the year of publication and a list of uh, dramatis personae, like uh, characters with a scene description for The Tempest at the bottom of that page. So these like kind of sparse final pages of like these prefatory materials kind of stand in contrast to like this really lengthy editorial that Roe did of Shakespeare. That's really interesting because it's right psychologizing the author for the first time. So throughout the rest of the 18th century, we see the amount of prefatory materials continue to expand. And here in 1725, for instance, we get to editor Alexander Pope's edition. Pope removed a dedicatory page, so there was no patron, but he added a 25-page editor's preface. He used Nicholas Rowe's account of the author. So now people are now starting to borrow stuff from other editors and use it as research or justification for additional editorial materials. He restored Ben Jonson's memorial poem from the folio, and he added an account of John Shakespeare, Shakespeare's dad's acquisition of a coat of arms. So now we're adding like just weird family stuff, like weird, like, like anecdotal stories about like something that happened to like his dad before he was even born, um, as well as a table of previous appearances of Shakespeare's plays in print before the production of the folio. So now we're starting the legacy of the plays, right? So like, oh, you may have seen these plays before. Here's a history of the publication of the plays in addition to history about Shakespeare the guy. These materials total 66 pages. So the combination of an expanded preface on the text itself like we're explaining the text now we have to like we we're not letting the text the plays stand for themselves anymore now we have to explain the text and prepare you to receive the text because it was created by this grand author right so now we get anecdotal and physical accounts of shakespeare's life and work alongside um like some restored textual allusions to the to the original folio so you're getting this really strange like textual landscape of like a desire to like prove the provenance of like this editor's edition um it's almost as if alexander pope is saying like well here's what i'm bringing to the table um but it's all because of william shakespeare and then we're moving on about 10 years to thibbled um, he had a 1733 edition, and he said it was, quote, corrected with notes, explicatory and critical, unquote. So now we're seeing authors, including other editors or editors, we're seeing editors include other editors work, but then like cutting it down and fixing the editor's work in order to make the history of the author more accurate. And it doesn't include anything about Shakespeare and its dedication. <laughs> it does not include Nicholas Rowe's account of Shakespeare's life. And it inserts, in fact, it inserts two 
uh, Ben Jonson poems <laughs> instead of one and has several additional poems in honor of Shakespeare and his legacy written after the publication of the folio. So it's not Shakespeare's contemporaries, his friends who are dedicating uh, poetry to him. It's like other editors or other fans who are like writing about Shakespeare's legacy, not Shakespeare himself or not his plays. This preface is expansive and biographical. Um, and like Dibbled is trying to like reconcile any known circumstance of Shakespeare's life and career with like what the what he calls quote touches of nature. What does touches of nature mean? I think again it's an attempt to like psychologize why somebody did something a certain way or why something was written a certain way given, you know, Shakespeare's personality and life based on anecdotal experience. So what is the effect of this? Well, in 108 pages, the impression left by uh, Tybalt's editing materials is like, it's like trying to like assure the reader of the brilliance of Shakespeare and the brilliance of his work by including an explanation of how Shakespeare was great. So not just that he did great work or that he was interesting, but like, no guys, he's really great, I promise. And sort of attempting to like substantiate the claim that Shakespeare was great through the poetry of other 17th century writers or 18th century writers like whether they knew Shakespeare personally or like Thibault had only been like touched by his legacy so now we're moving into like a, a slightly different thing so now we're going about 30 years we're going to Samuel Johnson he's a really notable editor scholar of art and playwork so Samuel Johnson's 1765 edition which is fully titled quote plays of William Shakespeare in eight volumes, with the corrections and illustrations of various commentators to which are added notes by Sam Johnson, end quote, is a, a very distinctive, very different tone of like amalgamation. It's sort of a mishmash. So Johnson, the editor, fulfills the promise of his title page by including after his own preface, those of Heming and Condell, Alexander Pope, Tybalt, Hamner, and Warburton. Uh, Hamner and Warburton did a 1744 and 1747 edition of the complete works of Shakespeare. So what we also see is a huge uptick as the 18th century progresses in the amount of volumes of complete works that are being published and produced at a, a, a pretty incredible rate. So he includes uh, Rowe's account of Shakespeare's life, Pope's recovered information on John Shakespeare's coat of arms, and a copy, which he provides himself, of Shakespeare's will. Besides Johnson's own preface, his other personal contribution to this material as an editor comes in the form of an anecdote related to him, Johnson, third hand, about a young Shakespeare's misadventure with a group of gentlemen's horses. So now we're getting way out into the, you know, into the boondocks of anecdotal stories about Shakespeare. Like this has nothing to do with his legacy or his work or reasoning for his 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 writing plays or what he was doing at the time it's just like a story about young Shakespeare that can't even be verified because now right Shakespeare is becoming assuredly the focus of why these volumes exist and why editors are writing so much material to justify the publication of these plays after 178 pages of editor's notes Johnson very graciously provides a dedication to Shakespeare, not to the plays, to Shakespeare. And it appears right before the title page and dramatis personae of The Tempest. So he's keeping the same structure as we've seen in a lot of these other ones. 
Johnson's opinion of the work of Shakespeare, the author, seems far less important than the fact that the history of Shakespeare's work now includes a select but expansive history of his editors or past editors' opinions of Shakespeare's work over time. So this is really examining Shakespeare himself before you get to the plays. The plays are almost evidence or serve as evidence to justify why the author, Shakespeare, is so interesting, right, and why we should care. So as a result, the inclusion of, of Ben Jonson's poem as the last thing right before the first play seems to act as like a buffer, like a text buffer or like a chronological buffer between like the reader who's reading these editorial notes, the editor who's providing all this information on Shakespeare and like the actual plays. He's almost saying like, okay, and here's Ben Jonson's dedication to bring you back to the actual plays. Like we're taking you back to the time in which these plays were first performed. Here we go. So now we're getting to the end of the 18th century. I have one more to talk about, and it is a doozy. This is 1790, and it's Edmund Malone's 10-volume edition of Shakespeare's complete works. And for Malone, the prefatory material, the editorial work, seems to have been tantamount to the actual plays themselves. And we've been seeing hints of that, right, as we've gotten throughout, as we've sort of built up through the 18th century. But his first volume is split into two parts. So volume one contains a part A and B. Part one contains no plays and 414 pages of editorial research and material. The title page is sandwiched between an illustration of Shakespeare in front of it, like before it, and one of Edmund Malone after. So that suggests like a strongly felt connection between authorial and authoritative. Shakespeare is the author, but Edmund Malone is telling us he is in fact the authority. So then it, it don't end there, folks. After 414 pages of, of pure prefatory material, then we get Edmund Malone's 81 page preface in which he expresses, he Malone expresses the need to separate the quote best, whatever that means, version of Shakespeare from the previous efforts of other editors like, that's what Malone set out to do, he says. He also seems to encourage the belief that the way to make the determination about which edition is best, whatever that means, is to be able to have every option of every prefatory material available to you simultaneously. So Malone is not really concerned with, like, correcting the text, but, like, elucidating its original wholeness through a more thorough insight into context and history. So Malone has his preface, and then he includes Johnson's preface, which is a piece concerned about how Shakespeare can serve generations as both an exception to his own time and an example for those who follow him. So again, now we're getting out of like, among these play, you know, among the other playwrights, right, Shakespeare was important, or like, here are Shakespeare's plays as a way to remember him. And now we're getting into like, oh, well, you know, yeah, Shakespeare wrote plays, and this is why we remember Shakespeare. We don't remember him because his friends published his plays. We remember him because he was the best, and this is why he continues to exist in this way. His legacy is that he was best, and he was exceptional, and so we're going to explain why that is. After the Johnson preface comes one by Stevens called Advertisement to the Reader, and that was first published in Stevens' 1773 revision of Sam Johnson's edition of the complete works. So this preface, Stephen's preface, contains footnotes made by Stevens 
to the original edition with additional notes on Stephen's notes that Edmund Malone makes. So Edmund is now creating or correcting Stephen's correction of Johnson writing about Shakespeare. So again, we're getting all these justifications for like authorship and why Shakespeare is great, but it's basically just people tripping over themselves about uh, their editorial opinions on what other people thought of Shakespeare. And what's interesting about this essay, about um, Stephen's essay, is the way in which Stevens substantiates his own opinions on the validity and provenance of Shakespeare's writings uh, and the time in which he lived, which is now almost, you know, over 150 years ago, um, through the research that previous editors have published. So he's using the previous publications as like a time capsule to justify what he thinks about Shakespeare's time and Shakespeare's work. And then he follows this preface with a list of ancient translations of classical works, ancient is in quotes, um, written and footnoted by Stevens and also amended by Malone. So why is that in there? Maybe like to further urge the comparison of Shakespeare as like a comparably classical author, right? So now we're, we're far enough into the future, right? And at the end of the 1700s that we can sort of look back on Shakespeare sort of fondly as a encapsulation of the quote-unquote best parts of the time in which he lived. So then Pope's preface comes next, and then Hemming and Condell's folio dedication and reader's preface, and then you get Nicholas Rowe's account of the author. So after all of this, we're still going. And then after that, we get a series of additionally inquired, acquired anecdotes, including Johnson's, which are all footnoted by Malone and also other people and credited to the editors or persons from which they came. Then we get footnoted entries of Shakespeare's family's births, marriages, and deaths. And this is going back to, this is one original source, actually. It goes back to the stationer's record. So it's almost like, it's like a historical census record. Along with an account of the family's coat of arms, which we heard about the, the John Shakespeare arms, followed by Shakespeare's will. A copy of his mortgage statement, including a facsimile of his signature and a series of poems dating throughout the 17th and 18th centuries in honor, not of the plays, but of the author. The order and appearance of these types of materials uh, at sort of the end might suggest an attempt by the editor to like use a combination of like old stuff and mundane stuff and like commentary to like lead up to the plays. I don't know. I don't even know, dude. And then the remainder of like Malone's preface materials include sparse tables of like ancient and modern editions of Shakespeare's plays and poems, recovered folio editions, recovered quarto editions compared to how they've been like spruced and fixed up, followed by a list of original sources for his plays. So like original sources of inspiration for the plays themselves. So this is interesting because this is sort of our first, um, insight into what a lot of modern scholars and editors of Shakespeare's work do in an attempt to tie the plays to their sources. So then we get a critical glossary, which is also interesting, containing citations about where to find more extensive or distinct opinions on Shakespeare's style, plays, or sources. Then we get more station or register evidence again in a 126-page essay written by Malone in 1778 and reprinted for this collection which attempts to put together the chronological order of when Shakespeare wrote each play. So, I mean, modern scholars may, of course, disagree and might even be amused by some of the claims and deductions this makes, but the scope of the work, the effort, and the amount of research that went into its production is masterful. 
it's a masterful example of like the development of textual and comparative analysis of scholarship, right? Authorship as scholarship. And its inclusion, its inclusion in this larger work might also suggest like a greater desire to like acknowledge the importance of this development in scholarship within the classical community. So finally, after all that, we get to an essay entitled Shakespeare, Ford, and Johnson. And this appears to be Malone's attempt to correct or elucidate a question of attribution brought up in an earlier section of the prologue or the prefatory material. Um, and what the, the article is trying to do is like take newly learned information and put it up for debate. So again, we're exploring scholarship and attribution theory rather than simply correcting this error, right, on an authoritative way. So by doing so, maybe Malone meant to add his own opinion to what he believed might be a larger textual debate instead of like using editorial authority to decide on a right answer. So even though we're seeing an enormous amount of control being taken to sort of co-opt and, and pump up authorship and Shakespeare above all else and then Malone right underneath, it is a really interesting way to sort of open up the scholarly debate and open up the idea of theorization and of argument and discourse instead of just authority. So the final contributions to this collection are in the second part of the first volume. So the first volume was completely taken up by prefatory materials. The second part of the first volume contains a 284-page account of the history of the English stage. That's right, the history, beginning with the mystery plays of the 12th century and continuing into the second half of the 18th century. And we get a set of notes amending the historical account. <laughs> so whenever it was written, it was published here, but instead of just being re-edited, it was amended separately. And then... Finally, materials relevant to the configuration of a text of the text itself, like the plays itself, a table of contents for the entire collection, page of directions addressed to the bookbinder about the order. After that is a small poem on literature by Ross Common, title page for The Tempest, and the Dramatis Personae, but here referred to as the list of persons represented, then the description of the opening scene. So, again... I think I'm going to conclude here by not concluding. I'm always very suspicious of the idea of an author with a capital A, where the author and the mystery of the author and the legacy of the author outshines the, the existence or the, the validity of an author's work. Um, I'm just a shifty, critical person, and so I'm always very interested in that. And I think that a lot of my scholarly and personal opinions on like being pragmatic about Shakespeare are about this. You know, I think that sometimes, and you may disagree, and that's okay. I think sometimes people get really caught up in the legacy of the name and the power of how long those plays have continued to exist in the public consciousness. And do I think there's anything wrong with that? No, I totally get it, but I'm still suspicious of it because I think it can potentially make people feel like certain work can't be critiqued or can't be expanded upon. And so I'm always very interested when I discuss work or when I discuss authorship or, or this period of history, especially as it relates to now, I'm always interested in ways to sort of expand the understanding of what is out there, but also like what things mean and why they continue to exist in the public consciousness. And I think what I wanted to do in sharing this was just observing what I've noticed about the way that these prefatory materials published during this period sort of shift the link and the focus uh, to, to Shakespeare. Like they, they try to link Shakespeare, his work, 
and the authors, the editors themselves, to like past opinions, but also future discoveries and to the circumstances of their own time and place. So I would encourage all of us when we're engaging with critical material and engaging in creative material that exists previously, that we develop it with a critical eye, not too far into ourselves, but tying it to sort of our contemporary time and place, but also thinking of it from the the way it ties to the past and also the way that it might develop in the future. Because I think works that are so important that we carry the author and the work into the future with us deserve to change with time. They deserve the opportunity to change and shift meaning and intention with time as we all should do. So that's just a little something I know and I wanted to share it with you. And as always, it's a pleasure. So this has been Who Cares? And I have been and continue to be for better or for worse, Melinda. Bye.